Mike Demerges here with the great Irv Eatman. When I say great, 11 years in the NFL and three years with the USFL, Philadelphia, and then Baltimore Stars. Irv, great to talk to you today. Great. Hey, Mike, great to talk to you as well. Thank you. So tell me why you chose the USFL over the NFL, because the Kansas City Chiefs actually drafted you. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they, they actually, the draft that year was after uh, the USFL started. So at the point I chose to go to the USFL, the NFL draft hadn't taken place yet, but they did draft me, I think, basically to hold my rights in anticipation of the league folding, which, of course, it did. But uh, for me, it was a matter of having a chance to do something that had been tried before, of course, with the WFL and the uh, uh, and all of that previous leagues, you know, years uh, in years past. But I felt like that was up to time of year was very appealing. Playing in the spring, uh, of course, I knew where I would be going, Philadelphia. So uh, the city itself was very attractive to me, and you know, I felt like if it worked, it would be something uh, new and exciting. And if it didn't, I felt like it all, I could always go back and do what I originally was going to do, which is play in the, in the NFL. Well, it certainly was exciting if you were a Philadelphia star. You guys went to three straight USFL championships, winning the last two under head coach Jim Mora. Uh, I mean, you had some incredible players on that team. You know, On defense, you had William Fuller and Sam Mills. And on, on the offense, you had Kelvin Bryant. Uh, yourself on the O-line with, with Bart Oates as well. And when I remember talking to Carl Peterson, he said we didn't have the real star, like the superstar, like, say, an Anthony Carter or Herschel Walker, but we were probably the best. We were the best team as far as working as a unit, as, as a team. I think that's true. But I, honestly, in my opinion, I'm a little biased, but I think we had the single best player in the, in the USFL, which is Kevin Blind. Uh, I, I, you know, like I said, he was my roommate. He was a friend of mine, obviously a teammate. But I think he was he was definitely the best individual player in the USFL, and he went on to have a successful career in the NFL as well with the Redskins. But uh, I, I think that's basically true. I think we had a group of guys who individually, for the most part, uh, wouldn't be considered superstars. But I think we had a great group of guys that worked hard. I remember our defense once called, well, actually ended up lovingly being called the doghouse defense. The doghouse defense, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> but they, and they got in the doghouse with Coach Moore, because we had a couple of bad outings, but after that, they were the most dominant defense in the USFL. And, you know, guys like Sam Mills, you know, rest his soul, one of the best players I've ever been around, period. No no asterisk whatsoever, just and one of the worst guys ever to practice against. I think I tried for three years straight to knock Sam down. I've seen zero times, I think. And, and talk about it. And the USFL gave an opportunity for veterans, because Mills, as I recall, he was cut by the Browns. And, and then had the opportunity to come in the USFL. And I remember Jim Morris saying when he went to the NFL with the Saints, he was, he was kind of kicking himself at first. This guy's too short. He'll, he'll, he'll never make it. He was being ridiculed by his comrades in, in the coaching ranks, taking a chance on this guy. And, boy, what an impact Sam Mills had on the NFL. Yeah, well, the guy who's too little and couldn't play has a stature outside of uh, the Panther Stadium down in Carolina right now. And so, uh, yeah, I think he proved to himself that he more than belonged. No, it was just a simple matter, which so happens uh, happens so many times in, in the NFL. You don't a guy doesn't fit the mold, and and then everything else is just assumed. I mean, Sam was a great player, but of course he wasn't the right height and he wasn't the right size, so therefore he couldn't play. And I think that he was he was a perfect example of a guy that, given a chance, you can't measure the size of a guy's heart. And uh, nobody had a bigger heart than Sam. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. You know, a guy that you know eventually does make it in the NFL. What was it that coaches couldn't see out of Sam Mills that they couldn't give him a shot, and, and he became such an incredible player years later? Well, well, I think the NFL, probably worse than any sports league, is, is has always fallen in love with numbers. You know, well, every every linebacker has to be six one and blah blah blah, and every running back and every quarterback, they, they just Sometimes they fail to actually look at the guy doing what he's asked to do, which is actually play the game. I mean, that's why you see so many draft picks blown year after year. Oh, the guy is 6'5", he's 230, and he can throw the ball, you know, 80 yards, blah, 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 but he can't play the game. <laughs> so it's like, you know, people, because numbers are easy to hide behind. So mm-hmm. that's why everybody says, hey, you know, this guy's the right height, he runs, he runs a 4'4", and, he's this, and so on and so forth. So it's easy to say, okay, this guy should make it because everybody recognizes numbers. But all you got to do is look at a guy play the game, 
and Sam could always play the game. So uh, I don't know. I think it's just it's an easy out for people to say, oh, okay, he's not the right size. And, and you, you see it every year. People blow draft picks all the time, missing on guys. Who, who don't fit the mold. Listen, I'm, I'm a Jets fan for 40 years. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, that's why well, I love you. As a former Jet at one time, I'm not touching that one. I'm not, I'm not. Well, let me just tell you, I was at the games in, nine, in 91 and 92, and, and, I, and I, I want to stay on Sam Mills for a little bit, but how come Browning Nagel never made it? I never understood it. How, what, I'm sorry, is that again? How, how come Browning Nagel never made it? Why did the Jets steer so so quickly away from getting from Browning Nagel? Well, well, honestly, and I, I love Brown as a teammate, but I think that uh, I think when he was at, I believe Louisville, uh, I think that it was a situation that where the system was kind of uh, molded to Browning, and I think when he got in the NFL, where everything just kind of you know, sped up, which happens with a lot of players. I think he was never able to kind of keep up with the pace of the NFL, which which is true for a lot of guys. I mean, you don't have everything you had time to take your time to do in college. In the NFL, you just, you know, with the speed and athleticism and the, and, and the complexity of the systems, it, it's hard to – you can't get away with that in the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> to, your, to your funny Browning Nagel story that one time, uh, we were <laughs> we were four and zero in the preseason. I, no, you guys were actually five and zero. That's why when people talk to me about the oh, preseason, right. I say nineteen ninety two New York Jets five and zero finish four right, twelve. Right, right, five. So we go into the first uh, first game, first game of the year. Browning's under center, or he thinks he's under center. And he comes on, he, he, he goes under center, and he starts altering to a Louisville play. And and literally, you you can see it on camera. All five linemen turned around and looked at him like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> well, he fumbled for the opening snap, did he not, in, in the Atlanta game? He fumbled for the opening snap? Well, I don't know. if it was, He didn't fumble because he, he – the funniest thing, we all looked at him like, Brian, what the hell are you saying? And, and, and right in the middle of the game, Brian said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man, it was all downhill almost, after that. almost fell on my face. But, yeah, he, you know, oh, wow. But he's a great kid, though. Great kid. So, so let's talk about Sam Mills. Uh, you, you know, certainly, I, I, I mean, he was literally the heart and soul of that Saints defense that Jim Moore turned around and he mm-hmm. brought all those USFL players in there. Tell me a, a Sam Mills story. Tell me, tell me about Sam Mills, the, the person he was. Well, you know what? What I think what a lot of people don't know about Sam because he was such a serious football player, uh, you know, and took the game so seriously. But as a teammate, the guy was a clown. I'll tell you about Sam Mills, and I'll tell you something, a story about him in death that tells you what, how he was in life. Uh, you know, when Sam passed away, obviously it was tragic, and, and uh, you know, I went to his funeral along with Carl Peters and a few of the people from the Chiefs organization. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, of course we're sad that Sam's gone. So we sit down at the funeral, and the guy gets up there, and he starts reading a letter from Sam. All right, I'm laughing because it was funny because I meant for it to be funny. And he's sitting there and he's telling everybody, "Don't be sitting there all long faced. Got all this chicken and collard greens downstairs with macaroni and cheese. I wish I was there to get so you guys better not. Be, don't be wasting time up here, you know, crying about this because if I was here, I'd be the first one in line. And it just, you know, and it just, you know, and you're sitting there and you're thinking in this solemn situation, but that's that's the way he was. You know, he. He was a guy that, on one hand, took his job very seriously, but didn't take himself too seriously. And, and that was the beauty of Sam. I mean, really, I, I never met a greater man than Sam. And I think that's why, you know, he has a statue outside of, you know, Carolina Stadium right now because he, uh, you know, he impacted everybody that he was around. He just was he was a beautiful man. I mean, he really was. He just was a great guy. He, you know, was gone too soon, but I think he made every day count when he was here. Absolutely. Uh, he affected people he, he didn't even know. Uh, let's talk about your team. Uh, you know, great defense, and wow, you, you play great defense, you run the ball, you win championships. What a novel concept, and, and you're, you're, you guys pretty much really did that. And I remember talking to Bart Oates. He said he felt at the time, by, by the third season, you guys could have beaten the Philadelphia Eagles at the time. How do you feel about that? Well, I certainly think there was probably four or five, maybe, I, I would say the bottom third of the NFL, we could have certainly beaten some of them or, and certainly challenged some of them. And that's not egotistical. That just means we had got, you know, we had such a world war machine and we were physical 
and uh, we've made very few mistakes in terms of turnovers and that type of thing. Our defense just knocked the crap out of people. Uh, yeah, I mean, in football is football. At some point, you know, the same, we were we were the same guys who were ultimately playing against some of these guys. So uh, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I agree with part 100%. And talk about that playoff game against Chicago. The Blitz had a big lead on you guys, and you guys were yeah. able to come back. Talk, talk about that playoff game. Well, I remember that. Is I think we were down, I don't know, I think three touchdowns, I believe. And it's in the start of the rain. And a matter of fact, the I'll never forget this. The highlight, if you know what I mean, at that moment, it, it played the song, It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls or whatever, <laughs> I think it was. But anyway, it started to rain, and as soon as it started to rain, the defense started to knock the ball out. We started to capitalize on turnovers. The next thing you know, I mean, we pull off this big victory, and, you know, it was, it was just amazing. I'll never forget that day. That was one of the most exciting games I've been a part of because they were so sure they had that game won. I mean, they And that Blitz team was led by, by George Allen, of course, the yeah. former Redskins mm-hmm. coach. And, mm-hmm. and the fans really started to embrace you from there. Talk about the fans' support in Philadelphia. You didn't have as many fans as, say, they had in Tampa Bay or Jacksonville, but it was, it was, it was kind of like what hockey is. You had a strong 17,000, 18,000 fans supporting you. Well, I'll tell you what, they, they, you know, you know, Philly fans. I mean, if you win, they love you. They would, yeah. And we, we won and they supported us. And I, I, that's the biggest regret. I think if we had had uh, a couple more seasons, uh, to play and show our product, I think it, you know, I think we really could have been successful. But the fans there, we could never argue about how the, the support they showed us. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't remember what our overall average was. You know, I think it was the low twenties or whatever. But I know if they made it, every one of them made us made made you know that they were there and they were loud as heck and it would sound like the entire stadium was full in in the vet you know which of course was one of the worst stadiums in history. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, uh, you know, nevertheless, I mean, they they rocked that place, and you know, we we could never complain about the you know about the overall support there. You know, they say about the old vet, if you can't find a urinal, you can always use a water fountain, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that reminds me. Uh, the, field, the field conditions were just yeah. unbelievable, but yeah, but it was, hey, you know what? It was home, and we uh, hey, we played at Franklin Field for a while, so you know. Uh, but it, you know, I, I think it, I think the whole experience to me showed me, made me appreciate for, again, even once you start getting paid to play the game, how simple the game really is. And it really just comes down to playing the game and being around guys and playing with guys that, that, that you care about and you have a common goal with. And it really is not, it's not as complicated as people make it. You know, it's, it's really just about that camaraderie and, and, you know, and trying to reach a common goal. And that common goal uh, culminated in appearing in the first USFL championship in Denver. Uh, I was talking to Bobby Bear, and he says, boy, what a scene it was. They had over 50,000 fans, and it was an exciting game. What do you recall about that experience and going onto the field? Well, I remember, yeah, just, I literally, I mean, just running out there and being surprised that it was that many people. I mean, let's face it, we're playing in the city that neither teams are from, so you never know what you're going to get, right? So we run out there, and the place is, is rocking, full of people, and lots of fans on both sides. And of course, you know, I, you know, I remember how we lost the game. It was an out out uh, route to Anthony Carter, and he and one of our guys missed a tackle, and he turns up the sidelines, and nobody's going to catch AC once <laughs> once he's gone. He runs it in, you know, time expires. And I tell you what, after that game, that right after that play on the field, we promised each other that next year was ours, and. uh because we felt like we let that one get away, and we promised each other that the next, you know, next trophy was ours, and you know, obviously the next two were. So, what, what's it like losing a big a championship game like that? What's it like in the locker room afterwards? I mean, can, can, and you guys were able to recover. We, we see teams when they lose the Super Bowl now have a hard time getting back. We see the struggles Atlanta's had since they, they lost. They're, you know, they're not the team they were last year. Uh, you know, you made a, a resolution to say we're going to go back to the Super Bowl, but uh, the USFL championship. But how hard is it once to really rebound in the moments after a loss like that? Well, I think it's all how you approach it. I mean, if you spend time dwelling on the loss, but we didn't. From that night on, we started dwelling on the next season. You know, because that was done, and we just literally, in the, you know, right after the game, we said, "Okay, the next one's ours." So we, we know, obviously, we had let it get away from us. And we felt like we didn't get beat, that, you know, nothing against them, but we felt like we had let it get away from us. And so we started to focus on the next season. Forget about that. This is gone. Forget about it. You know, after the night, we're done with it. And that's, that's pretty much how we approach it. Now, some teams, they sit there and they, you know, they wallow in what could have been, 
you know, after the game's over, the score still's not going to change, and you're still thinking about that in training camp and spring training and all of that. And before you know it, it's eating into your season. You're still thinking about last year. So we didn't allow that to happen to us. I think this was key to us being successful for two following seasons. Well, the following season, if you were going to do it, you are going to have to get past a uh, New Jersey Generals team that was spending a lot of money. Guys like Bobby Leopold came from the NFL, Gary Barbaro, Brian Sipe. The Generals really reloaded. They brought Walt Michaels in to coach the team. And the uh, Donald Trump was, was spending money. So they were your real rivalry there. Uh, the, the Stars and the Generals were a real USFL rivalry. I know, Robert, we own them. I mean, they... <laughs> All right, you, I mean, you, beat, they, you beat them all the time, okay? Get yeah, off my back. I mean, I mean, they were, it was a rivalry on paper, but let's face it, we own them. I mean, all that money they spent, we still beat them down. I mean, it's just like, because I'm telling you, they went out and tried to manufacture a team, and we had a team. Yeah, it was that simple. I mean, they tried to put the, they went out second year, tried to tried to load up and get all these guys. We had a bunch of guys that had been through the grind. I mean, everything from the first training camp down in the land, plant, uh, the land floor, planting these flooded fields in the spring, and all of that, and you know, we had already we had already had mesh as a team, and you know, we weren't going to be denied. And they were trying to, you know, take the you know, buy their way through it. It just wasn't going to work. How, how much did the defense get up when they knew they were going to face Herschel Walker? Well, you know, I, I think that <laughs> I think they definitely took it up a notch because I remember exactly. I think if you look at it statistically, uh, honestly, Herschel never had a good game against us. I can recall uh, because. Uh, I mean, our defense was amazing, and and I think with the better the player they played against, uh, the, the more they got up for it. I mean, Sam and guys like George Cooper and you know Antonio Gibson. I mean, those, you know those guys. I mean, they they were they were unbelievable. I'm glad we were playing with them instead of against them. That's for sure. Uh, you guys in the second season, you, you take care of the Generals at Franklin Field, like you talked about earlier. What a great place to watch a game that was, uh, or play a game, I'm sure. Um, and, you, and you go back to the USFL Championship, and you take care of uh, George Allen this time in the playoffs. Uh, it was, the championship was in Tampa Bay, and you beat him 23-3, to and you really owned it this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the result that we, we expected the first time. Again, no respect, no disrespect to the, to the uh, <clears throat> to Michigan. They, I mean, they, they won the game. But, I mean, we felt like, honestly, that we should have won all three. And uh, when we had a second chance, there was no way that we were going to leave any doubt the second time around. I mean, we felt like that if we left one on the table and we were definitely, we were definitely not going to miss out, you know, when we played the, uh, you know, played against um, the Rangers out in, um, uh, down in um, uh, Tampa. So, you know, it, it was fun. It was, I mean, to me, it was, it was the most fun period I, I had playing my whole career, pro, uh, pro career, honestly, those three years. That's- it was only – yeah, that's what I hear from a lot of players. I mean, they love playing in the USFL, and it's during this time, during that second season, you started to hear the rumors about moving to the fall. What was right. the, what was the initial thought process among the players about moving to the fall? Because um, I, well, I I know so many people, so many players love what they were doing in the USFL. Well, I thought it was the dumbest idea ever. I mean, you were going against, I think at the time, against an almost seventy-five year entity. That had to fall locked down. Let's be realistic. And they had to lock down. And that's not why we came into existence. We came into existence to fill a void in the spring, whereas, you know, uh, early baseball and, uh, and golf, you know, so we, the whole point was to fill a void in the spring. And here we are, you know, less than three years into the thing. We're talking about going head to head, head to head. How? With what? I mean, what? It was ridiculous. I mean, it was a ridiculous concept. And I can't believe that the owner, the owner allowed himself to be talked into that. And it was disappointing to us because we felt like we had the perfect niche and we felt like we just had more time because I don't think anybody would ever say that it wasn't good, quality, entertaining football. You know, not relative to anybody else, just good, quality football that you cannot get in the spring because there was no spring football. And so I think that when, we, when, when they tried to move, obviously it was death nail business-wise, I just think it was a stupid idea to begin with. And it certainly led to the doom of the uh, the USFL trying to to go to that fall league. And, uh, you know, you find out that their contracts were in place um, with ESPN and ABC worth $250 million. You know, why would you, why would you throw that away, $250 million worth of TV contracts? And, and you know, the USFL owners really basically just threw it away at the time. What did, what was, uh, your own, you had a great ownership in Mr. Tannenbaum. Uh, what was he yeah. telling the players, and how were things being relayed to the players um, from the ownership? 
Well, honestly, we weren't told a lot. I mean, we got our, you know, we got our information from guys like you. You know, we, we weren't, wasn't like we were kept abreast or anything or whatever. I mean, it just, you just kind of like, you're sitting there with your, obviously your future in jeopardy, not knowing whether you're going to have a league or whatever. And then, of course, uh, over time, you know, some guys were, were a little bit in limbo, like basically thinking, well, you know, if I'm not going to be able to play uh, in the USFL, we're not going to continue, then I need to make a move to the NFL or whatever and so I can continue my career. And like my personally, like myself, I had to sit out um, a whole extra season uh, after you know after we suspended play after after the third season. Uh, I wasn't able to get in to that fall season with the NFL because I was still technically under contract. And I was one of the few guys where they uh, still held my contract and wouldn't release me. So I missed that first NFL season that I was could have played. So moving to 1985, uh, obviously the announcement to go to the Fall League, and that cost you guys uh, access rights to, to Vet Stadium. Deal couldn't be worked out to go to Franklin Field, and you guys wind up playing at the University of Maryland. That had to be very odd, very draining. You guys struggled throughout the season, but towards the end you really, really turned it on. Yeah, talk about how Jim Moore, Coach Jim Moore, kept the team together during that time. Yeah, we did struggle early on. I think we ended up initially being two and three or something like that uh, within the first five games or something like that. And we just kind of, um, you know, of course, Jim was always, uh, he was always, he was steady. He, you know, he didn't have a lot of ebbs and flows. But I think it came to a point during the season where we just got together as a team and decided, you know, I don't know what we're doing here, but, you know, we're the champs and I don't care where we play, you know, this is our league. We own this league. And we just kind of basically refocused ourselves, came out, and for the last, um, I think for the last, I don't know, I think we went 11 out of the last 12 or 10 out of the last 11 or something like that. I know we ended up winning 13 games. And, you know, it was just kind of like we just decided, you know what, I don't know who this is. It's masquerading as us, but this is not us. And we just kind of refocused uh, and, and regained our footing and, and, and kind of ran through the season after that. And then you played, of course, in the playoffs, the New Jersey Generals once again. And, well, they didn't have Doug Flutie, so you guys got lucky. And you, and you beat them. You beat the Generals in the Meadowlands. I was there. Uh, it was a night game, and um, you took care of business against the Generals once again. And, uh, you know, certainly once, once you got past the Generals, you probably thought there was no way anything was going to stop you. Yeah, well, you know, it, I mean, it, like I said, we, we now, you know, and not we weren't arrogant about it. But we felt like we were the superior team in the league. And we felt like we, we honestly, and Coach Moore had a lot to do with it, we went, every game we went out, we felt like we should win that game. And I don't mean hope we win it. We felt like we should win it. And honestly, when we started out uh, with the subpar record at the beginning of the season, we were actually in shock for a while. I mean, I know I was. Um, because we, you know, we didn't, we couldn't understand it because we had never been in that position before. We won, what, 16 games the first year and 19 games the second year. Uh, you know, so we were a little confused about why we were allowing that to happen. So uh, we were able to write the ship at the end, you know, and win the championship again. And, and you guys, like we talked about earlier, great defense, and you're able to run the ball. And we see today, we see what the NFL is, and we see a lot of college, you know colleges all pass, and you see the Big 12, too, so much passing going on. It seems like nobody knows how to run block anymore. And, and talk about the the mentality that, you can break the will of a defense by running the ball, which is different from pass protection. Talk about that mentality and that difference. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you just said it too. It is a mentality. You know, you, I hear, I hear a lot of times in the NFL, you see guys uh, halfway through a game, oh, we got to start running the ball. <clears throat> well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to run the ball. You have to have a mentality run the ball. You have to be willing to live with sometimes. Oh, that's a two-yard game. That's a three-yard game. If you're gonna if you're gonna ban it every time, you know you don't you don't gain five or ten yards, then that's not the mentality. The mentality is that eventually, you know, maybe two yards, three yards, four yards, but eventually it's going to turn into ten and twelve and fifteen, and then you know you break a long one. And you're right, it does wear a defense down. They they'd much rather be pass rushing than have you leaning on them all day long. And uh, you know, but we we stayed dedicated to it. We never deviated from that because we knew that's the formula we needed to win. And I think that if, you know, you don't see many teams that throw the ball predominantly and have much success. The Chargers tried it forever, uh, you know, with Dan Fouts and all that. And you have some success, 
But ultimately, you're going to have to run the ball. Whether you are, even if you're ahead, you're still going to have to run the ball, keep the ball away from another offense. Well, and yeah, yeah. The Cowboys in the '90s, they passed the ball, and then and then uh, Emmitt Smith basically wore down the defense. Right, right. You don't, you don't just, but you don't just turn that on. Oh, you know what? We're going to run the ball today. No, it doesn't work that way because you guys are front. You as an offensive line, you have to know that there's four or five running plays that we can execute well against any defense. Doesn't matter who it is. I don't care if it's the '85 Bears or whomever it is. That you have to have, uh, you know, at least a handful of plays that you know that you can execute against anybody. So going to the last uh, USFL championship, quite a big different scene. You're in, you know, sunny Denver, last game in '85, the championship. It's raining. You know, there's going to be, you know, a change as trying to move to the fall. You know, the trial is going to happen with the NFL. Talk about what you were thinking and what the team was. I mean, did you guys know th- this is the last time we're going to be together? Well, we knew it wasn't. It wasn't looking good. You know, to me, the minute that we heard that we were going to try to move to fall, we knew that wasn't good. I mean, nobody. I don't think any player for one second thought that was going to work. I mean, we thought that was just that was a joke. So, I think from our standpoint, I know as a team, and I know personally, we just kind of approached it from okay, you know what? We're just going to enjoy the moment and let the chips fall where they may. When this is over, very well could be the last season. But we're just going to stay in the moment and and maximum and, and all we can control is where we are right now. And that's kind of how we talk about it. You know, all we control is where we are, and we can play this game, we can win this game, and however it ends up, you know, this can never this can never be taken away from us. And this that's pretty much you know was our mentality. And you guys beat the Invaders, who had merged with the Panthers, and there Bobby Abair was again, and there Anthony Carter was again. But you guys held on, uh, twenty-eight to twenty-four. Kelvin Bryant, as I recall, was was a game MVP, and you talked about him being a great back and, and everything. And, and talk about the final minutes of that game because you you guys didn't know if you're going to hold on and, and win that game towards the end. Well, I mean, I think we were confident. We were confident going in, and we were coming. I mean, we played in a bunch of close games and. And, uh, you know, we, it wasn't, you know, obviously we've been the championship three years in a row, so there was no nerves or being overly concerned at that time. Uh, you know, and again, the, the, uh, the invaders, you know, they're a very good, very good football team. And obviously we had kind of played them before. And, uh, so, and, and they're a good football team. I think they, I think next to us, they probably were the second best team in the league. So, uh, but, you know, we, we were confident and, and it turned out like we thought it was. Talk to me about some of the USFL players, uh, Reggie White. You know what? We obviously like someone like me or the fans know he was great, but you know, tell us a Reggie White story or what made him so difficult. And were you surprised he had such an impact on the NFL once he, once he went there? Well, Reggie, I knew Reggie personally because I tried to recruit Reggie at UCLA when I was there. He came out as a recruit, and obviously he ended up going to University of Tennessee. But Reggie was, uh, you know. Uh, Aside from being immensely talented, he was also uh, just a, a workman. I mean, he worked at his craft, and he was just—I mean, just full time all the time. You knew with Reggie, there was no plays off, none of that. And to me, in a funny way, it kind of pushed you as a player because you knew playing against Reggie—you know—don't come in half stepping, or you can get yourself embarrassed. And uh, you know, he was obviously one of the greatest players in history. Uh, but I, I think the thing I admired about him most as an opponent uh, was that his work ethic. You know, people said, well, he had great talent. Well, yeah, that goes without saying. But I think his work ethic. I mean, he took a lot of pride in what he did. And, you know, obviously he was a quality man as well. Uh, and I, I think that's I think that's what you know the most about Reggie, uh, being around him and playing against him. Vaughn Johnson, your thoughts on Vaughn Johnson? Uh, he was a phenomenal. <laughs> just remember how athletic he was. He was just. Um, just a uh, seemed like a guy that didn't have any physical flaws. I mean, he he could do it all. I mean, he was just that's what I remember about him. Just an incredible. I mean, guy that was put together physically, athletic, smart, uh, mo- you know, moved well. I mean, he he was a complete package. Keith Millard. <laughs> Keith Millard. We had some. I remember <laughs> we had some battles there. Keith was. Uh, and we used to laugh about it because I coached with Keith in Oakland uh, as a coach, and we laughed about it because Keith was one of those guys like, <clears throat> you know, he kind of played out, you know, out of control, you know, wild-eyed, just out of control all the time, you know, talking smack, which is fine by me because I like talking a little smack myself. But you know, and but he was a full, he was one of those guys that had a full-time motor, 
and just never let up. I mean, and besides being a talented and skilled player, but he would just he had an incredible motor. That's what I remember about him most was just the fact that he would he brought it every play. Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly to me was a you know was a consummate pro. I mean, he uh, obviously was an unbelievable quarterback, and he did it in college. He did it in the USFL. He did it in you know in the NFL. But just a consummate pro, just a, just an extremely skilled guy that had success at every level. I mean, <laughs> nothing to argue about. And, and you know, I knew Jim on a casual level. Uh, you know, great guy. We didn't, we didn't know each other well, but he seemed like a great guy. But he was just an unbelievable perfect, you know, just unbelievable professional that took his craft very seriously. And, and it showed because he, he got great results everywhere, everywhere he went. Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker. I always get a pause from people when they say when they, I mentioned Herschel Walker's name. Well, he was uh, he was an unbelievable athlete, an incredible athlete. Uh, different, different in the sense that you know he, the way he uh, talked about himself, using the third person. Um, but an incredible athlete. I mean, there's no nick on the Herschel as you know, and I can't profess I knew him personally. Personally, we met a few times. But he was incredible. I mean, fast, big, strong, uh, you know. But uh, honestly, I don't think, you know, like I remember us preparing to play against him. We we never feared him. You know, I, de- I never heard our defense, you know, they never feared him. They, they, they looked forward to the challenge of playing against him. But he was, a, he was a phenomenal athlete, one of the best in the history of sports, really. Are you surprised he didn't have a better NFL career? No, I don't think so. I, I think when you, I, I, I think, in my opinion, I, I kind of think the legend of Herschel became even bigger than the man himself. Uh, if that makes any sense. What I mean is, sometimes there's, there's a few guys that come down the pike every now and then where it just gets to be, you know, like, okay, okay, my God, the guy does still have just two legs and all uh, right. He, he's not, uh, you know, he's not some kind of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, transformer. I mean, sometimes some of the stories just get to the point like, oh my God, just come on. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> the guys will have a player, but come on, let's just come back in this universe. And I think sometimes, and, and I don't think this hurts with Paul. I think sometimes, you know, you, you know, I think, I think it happened with Bo a little bit, you know, uh, and I knew Bo. I knew because I was in Kansas City when he was with the Royals. I mean, guys have such abilities. Sometimes people are just like, "Oh my God!" It's like they take it to a level where it's like, "Stop it!" Just you know, come on, you know. I, I remember so. talking to, talking to Maurice Carthon uh, when Herschel went to the Cowboys and Carthon was with the Giants in that classic Monday Night game in '86, and Herschel Walker knocked down Harry Carson and. <laughs> and Carthon was laughing because he said no one ever did that to Car- to Carson before. And Carson went back and said to him, "Why don't you tell me he could do that?" He goes, "Well, he could bring it when he wants to." And I, I kind of think that was, from what I hear from people, that's kind of what Herschel was. He, he was a great athlete, but maybe he didn't always want to bring it. Yeah, well, I, I don't think anybody ever, you know, I like. I, I think like for our defense, you respected his speed and size, but I don't think anybody ever. I don't think I've ever heard the word used. Uh, like he ever ran over anybody? Oh my God, he laid the wood on anybody. I don't think anybody ever feared that. You know, uh, I think that he had tremendous, you know, quickness, quick feet. Uh, obviously, he had a tremendous size, hard to tackle. But I don't think that, uh, to me, like you know, this um, a scarier guy than that who who didn't have, I don't think the same level of cartoonish height was Eric Dickerson. You know, now to me. That was the scariest guy I've ever seen. The yeah. one that's scary guy. Well, he, he he could smoke a hole like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, you look at a guy who's six foot four walking around out there, and you thinking he's a wide receiver. They're saying that he's lining up the tailback with all that, you know, the goggles and all that. And that big guy was, I mean, to me, now he was a scary dude because he did not shy away from. He'd run over you, run by you, shake you, whatever the case might be. So, yeah, but you know, not that one thing has anything to do with the other. But I'm just saying, to me. You know that that was the kind of guy where you're like thinking, okay, I can't come come up tackling him and messing around because this guy the one over me. But yeah, I mean, I, I just think, like I said, I think when you when you a guy like Herschel, who you know, and he he went to a Southern school, and sometimes you know, legends going to South so big, it's like <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> you know, talk about a guy who might be six two, and by the time they get to talking about, he's six nine, 
four fifty, you know, ran a four flat. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I think he was kind of a kind of a victim of his own success. I think. Uh, a couple of your, your team, William Fuller, went on to have a great career in the NFL, and of course, Kelvin Bryant and Gary Clark and Ricky Sanders won. Basically, they helped lead the Washington Redskins to Super Bowl. Uh, that trio right there. Yeah, absolutely. Also, unfortunately, the last time I saw Kelvin was at uh, Sam's um, funeral, and uh, you know he looked the same. I said we were roommates for three years um, in, uh, in the USFL. Uh, you know, just a great teammate, just a great guy. So it wouldn't surprise me that he had an integral uh, contribution to uh, success with the Redskins. But uh, you know, those two guys are great players as well. Didn't know them personally, but you know, great players as well. Yeah. Well, what what and, made uh, what made Kelvin so great? So, you know, if, if you could describe Kelvin Bryant, what made him great? Well, I'll tell you what, you, you look at him, he was 6'2", 190, looks like a little wiry uh, drink of water. But I'll tell you what, he had a he had a mentality in the heart of, uh, and if you remember some of his runs, he ran like a linebacker. I mean, in the sense of uh, he didn't shy away from contact. Uh, you know, he was tough. He played hurt. Uh, you know, he was the type of guy, like maybe if, we were having trouble running the ball. Yeah, you know, he wasn't the kind of guy to come back to huddle and whine and you know what's going on, whatever. He just looking out. Hey, hey, let's go, let's go. <laughs> you know, give me the ball. I mean, a lot of times I was telling somebody, and I think it sounds like legend, but you know, we weren't complicated on offense, and we'd go up to the line and people would say it's coming right here, you know, <laughs> and we would look over and say, yeah, it's coming right here. You know, what I mean, it's like it's not like I remember the touchdown we had against uh, Chicago in the playoff game. There we go. It's coming right here. It's coming right here, right over, you know, the dark tackle hole. And we would say, yeah, it, it is. It's coming right here. What are you going to do? I mean, and that's the mentality he had, and that's the mentality we had. We have a guy like that that ran the way he did. I mean, you, you want to block a little extra. You just, you know, you're throwing your body because you know, you know, he's not going to just go, not, he's not going to go down on an arm tackle or initial hit. It's not going to happen. And uh, I love playing with him. I mean, the guy was a stud. Tell me about Jim Moore. You had Don Capers on that staff, and any any of the coaches that had an impact in the NFL. Tell me, tell me about Jim Moore. Well, as far as impact of the coaches, I mean, the entire staff almost. I mean, guys are still coaching, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, you had you had Vic still, Fangio on there too, right? Yeah, Vic and Dom Capers, and uh, um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, almost the whole staff. You know, Jim Merkinbeck for a long time, Russell Soul. Almost a whole staff, really. Uh, but <clears throat> what I liked about playing for Jim was, first of all, he was uh, he was great at getting you ready to play. Like the great thing about Jim was that you knew that you were never going to be surprised by your opponent, and if that meant staying out there an extra hour and a half, then so be it. Because <laughs> he was he he did not buy into that. Oh, you know, get him off the field. They're going to be tired. No, if you didn't do it, you 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 didn't have to just do it. You had to do it correctly to get off the field with Jim. And uh, there was a countless times where we'd have a quote unquote two and a half hour practice, and then uh, two hours into it, Jim would start the whole thing over again. You know, because you know that's just the way he was, and he was a perfectionist. But at the same time, he was a fair guy. Um, <clears throat> you know. And he was fair to, you know, I think he was fair to everybody. He just had an expectation. And when we, and if you, if you failed to reach, reach that expectation, he let you know about it. Talk about that, too. It's a little off the USFL track, but you talk about two-and-a-half-hour practices. Is it because players do not practice in training camp the way they used to that it takes about four or five games during the NFL season to see some quality football? In your estimation as a former football player, do you think that's an accurate statement? Well, I, I, to, to back up from that a little bit, I think what's happened a lot of it is, and I think it's good, the the, the less contact and training camp and all, I think that's good because I think it's going to extend guys' careers. Because, I mean, I came along at a time when, you know, with Jim Moore and Marty Schoenheimer, guys like that, where you're, you're practicing in training camp twice a day, three hours a day, twice a day for four weeks nonstop without a break. <laughs> you know, that can't be good. But... Now, on the flip side of that, what happens is because everything is so uh, so minimized, I think guys don't work on fundamentals anymore. Nobody can tackle anymore. Now, I'm not just some old guy saying that. Anymore. Look at all these guys. You see all these guys getting hurtled. Looks like everybody's ducking their head. Nobody, ta- nobody wraps up. Everybody wants to get the ESPN shot now. 
So they don't wrap up. They go up and try to knock the crap out of the guy. So he's knocking down, or the guy breaks it for 60 yards. Nobody wants to do fundamentals anymore. And then so what happens is, because everybody concentrates on, I think it's more scheme-oriented now because of the lack of physicality in terms of practices and so on. Everybody wants to practice scheme, and everything is imaginary. Tackling is imaginary. Everything's imaginary. So when you get into a live situation, it's like the first first time you've actually done it live. And, you know, it's like, you know, in the military, they have live ammunition testing, I mean, uh, practice, because they know you, you're going to react differently in a live situation than you are in, in, in a non-live situation. So I, I just think, I think a lot of it has gotten lost because everybody's talking about all the geniuses and the scheme guys and, you know, the great defensive minds, offensive minds, all that's part of it. But you still got to do the fundamentals. And I think the teams that, that adhere to that best are teams that have the most success. And talk about now you know, going to Kansas City. Were you well received by your fellow NFL players, or did they kind of look at you like uh, like a mockingly that you're a USFL has been or something like that? No, I don't think so. I think if you remember uh, <clears throat> the second year of the league, that's when things really heated up. You had a lot of guys from the NFL that double dip that came over to our league and played and went back and vice versa. So. Um, you know, I think I don't think there's any question about you know that they knew there were some good players. Or I think at one time, I think I read that when it was all said and done, I think we had over 200 players that made uh, active rosters in the NFL once the league filled. So I don't think there's any question that you know there were skilled players over there. And plus, a lot of us they already knew about before we even went over there. I mean, like you know, guys whether from college, like in my case, or guys that had been in the NFL and came over. So I don't think I didn't get that feeling anyway. That that was that was the attitude, you know. Tell me about the the greatest defensive player you went against and the greatest teammate you had. Greatest defensive player was, in my mind was Leslie O'Neill from the Chargers. Um, he was to me. The, he ne- he never gets talked about. Well, he was to me before he got hurt, and unfortunately, that's that's when I encountered him the first time. He was the most unbelievable combination of speed, power, explosiveness, size, attitude, effort. I've never seen anybody like him. And that's including he played against Reggie and so many other great players and nothing against those guys. But to me, you're talking about picking one guy, and every time I get asked this, I always say the same guy. To me, it was Leslie O'Neill. Wow. Yeah, like I said, you never, you never even hear about that. Tell me about uh, Derek Thomas. DT, uh, great teammate, great teammate. I, you know, I, and I, I know a lot of things get said and heard about guys, but he's a guy that you want on your football team because you know that every single day he's going to give you 100% every single day. You know, and he's a great guy and loved him. He's a great teammate. Uh, you know, I was <laughs> sitting there watching get seven sacks against Seattle should have been eight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just a phenomenal talent. I mean, speed, quickness, size, uh, power, you name it. And he could, and he could give it all to you. And you know, I, I think the thing that Derek didn't get credit for because he was such a fun loving guy was that he, his, he was a smart guy in his approach to the game. You know, maybe it's not a word you hear associated with him a lot, but he was not a dumb guy. He was a smart guy when it came to his approach to the game figuring guys out and looking at you and figuring out your weaknesses. And hell, even in practice, he was trying to, you know, trying to make you better and figure, you know, uh, you come out and say, Hey, Irv, I got something for you today, man. You know, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, uh, you know, but he was, that's, that's the way he was. He was always trying to get better. And it was such a tragic loss, uh, you know, when, uh, when he lost his life, but uh, a yeah. phenomenal teammate. Uh, you know, football is a dangerous game, and I just want to talk to you briefly about concussions and stuff. But I was at the game against Kansas City, nineteen ninety two, when Dennis Bird was injured, mm. uh, and I just remember it was a weird feeling sitting in the stands, quiet, and it wasn't a play that you think someone would get hurt on. You know, what do you remember about that game? Well, it's funny you should, you know, uh, phrase it that way because that's exactly my thought was. I mean, you know how many times I've seen that play, you know, where the two ends come together and they run into each other and one guy has his head down, it's no big deal. You know, you see it a thousand times during the course of a career. And I remember it very, you know, very explicitly. And Dennis ran into uh, 
uh, Mercer, I believe it was. Scott Mercer. Uh, yeah. And um, he had his head down. He hit Mercer's chest. And this was a big, strong dude. Now, I'm talking, you're not talking about some, you know, pencil neck guy, but I guess he hit it just, just the right way. And then this ran with such, you know, speed and effort that, you know, he probably was, you know, uh, going 20 miles an hour. And he collapsed, and you could just see the way he fell. That uh, that he wasn't gonna. It just it was just weird. You don't see people fall and not catch themselves. But you know, we we're, we're all hoping he was knocked out. You know, we hope okay, he hit his head, he knocked himself out, and he's unconscious. But then he laid out there, and it seemed like I swear to God, it seemed like he was out there three days, and he just laid there, and he laid there, and nobody ever saw him, saw him move at all. Uh, but I don't think anybody ever thought about him being paralyzed, you know, because you just you just don't think about that. And I remember him carrying him off, and you know he never moved. And um, you know after that, you know I remember I, I think it was the second quarter. I think it happened. I believe nobody cared about the game after that. Nobody, uh, I, nobody was really thinking about it. We went through the motions, but nobody was thinking about that. And I remember, you know, a little story that. I remember years later, <clears throat> Dennis, um, I was, uh, I can't remember what team I was with, but I was, there's a training camp. I looked across the field and I said, that looks like Dennis, excuse <clears throat> me, that looks like Dennis. But I was like, this guy was walking toward me. I was like, that looks like Dennis, but that looks like Dennis Bird, but there's no way. Because the guy looked like a guy who was just walking with a limp, but he looked like Dennis Bird. And I didn't know that, <clears throat> I hadn't talked to Dennis in years. And I said, wow, that's Dennis Bird. It was the most amazing thing to see because he, uh, like I said, I didn't know he was up walking again. And uh, it was, you know, it was great to see. And, of course, his life in the tragedy as well. But uh, I think it was one of those things you never forget. You, you know, it was like, I don't know, you never forget where you were and the moment. And, and you just, it's one of those things that's forever frozen in your mind. If I, if I could, uh, one of my students is doing a, his documentary on concussions and <laughs> player safety and, if you could share your your thoughts on it as an offensive lineman, I remember talking to Dan Jiggets. He said playing football and playing offensive line is like getting in a mini car accident every day. Uh, you know, talk about your early days of training that you were, you know, even when I was playing at that way small levels, you're taught to lead with your head and put your head in there to tackle. You know, talk about player safety and, and what it was like when you were playing in, you know, the, the marks that they, the NFL is trying to do to this day. But, you know, I, I think there's kind of a, a dark side of the NFL. They didn't want to really treat the, the players properly towards concussions. What, what are your thoughts about, you know, being retired all these years now and playing 30 years ago uh, with head injuries and player safety? Well, I think it's, it's, it's the most serious thing facing uh, the league at this time. And I think finally it's good to see finally that, you know, that, the league is actually acknowledging the existence of it. Uh, I know when 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 I came into the league, you know, all they had was uh, see what you hit posters, you know, in the locker room. Keep your head up, you know. Not saying well, it has anything to do with anything, but just keep your head up, you know, so you don't get hurt. And and honestly, you know, people say, well, I hear people say, well, <clears throat> you guys knew what you were getting into, and you really don't. It's like saying it's like it's no different than. <clears throat> like when you get in, when you go buy a car. Well, they tell you, uh, yeah, this car is great, it works, but sometimes the brakes don't work. Well, you can now you can decide whether you want to take that chance or not, right? Because you have all the information. But if you don't have all the information, then you can't make that decision. Now, personally, uh, I think 99% of the guys might have made the same decision. There are some guys that wouldn't have, you know, to play if they had all all the all the information that's available now and it's starting to come out. I just personally think, obviously, as a sport, it's impossible to make it safe, but you can make it safer. You know, it's no different in boxing or anything. People are going to get hit. There's going to be concussion. People are going to die sometimes or whatever. <clears throat> but you want to make it as safe as possible. And I think until you start to acknowledge uh, the things that are being pushed forward now with the concussions and, and the long-term uh, brain damage and that type of thing, and, and then, like I said, avoiding con- more contact and practices and the headshots and games. And I, I do think there's a, there's a proactive effort to now to eliminate some of the damage that's been caused by the game by people just ignoring the fact that this, you know, that it even existed. So I think that's a good thing. 
I think, unfortunately, a lot of people have been sacrificed in the interim when there was information to the contrary. But I guess better late than never. Did, did you ever play with the concussion? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, of course, at that time, <laughs> you come off the sideline and the chest was, where are we playing? What did Who are we playing? How many fingers? There's always two fingers anyway. Mm-hmm. You say that, then you're good to go. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's certainly no, oh, he's out two weeks later with concussion protocol. I mean, are you kidding? What, what, do you yeah. th- what do you think of the new helmets? you think the new, new style of helmets, they ca- kind of have the angles to absorb the blow and everything? Is, <clears throat> is that, do you think that really works? I mean, what you well, co- I, last coach 10 years ago, so you're still, you know, still with the modern times. Right. Well, I, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think helmets help that much. Uh, I think the key is get, uh, removing and uh, minimizing blows to the head, you know. And I think, uh, again, like I said, the, the safest option is not to play the game. I don't see that as a real option. You know, I think that, you know, my son plays. He's in high school. He plays. And he can play as long as he wants to play. I, I, you know, I think it would be disingenuous of me to say, oh, no, stay away from football. You know, you, I mean, are you kidding I mean, that's what he wants to do. I mean, I hand him, hand him the keys to the car when he turns 16. That's much scarier than me. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so, so, but at the same time, I do want him to be as safe as possible. So I've always, from the time he first started playing, I always taught him, you know, don't involve your head. You know, use your shoulders, don't involve your head if you can avoid it. And so I think that just the awareness of it now and, and teaching it differently now than, than, than I was taught when I was coming up. And like you said, like you were taught, I think that will help. But again, you, you can't, you're not going to remove it entirely. That's impossible. It's a, it's a violent contact sport. And people go see that violence. But if you can remove the head shots and the blows to the head, unnecessary, particularly unnecessary blows to the head, where guys are targeting the head and all that, which, are, which I think they're making a great effort to, to do now, I think that will help. Uh, do you know any players that suffered from... from uh from CTE and or suffered severely from concussions after the playing career? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I do. And, I, you know, obviously I'm not going to call them by name, but uh, yeah, I do. And some of them are friends of mine and, and, you know, some are friends of mine that, that I knew that they're no longer here. Um, it, it's it's a really, I, I think we're just tip, you know, scratch the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding it because, you, you know, you, you don't know what other factors come into play, you know, so on and so forth. So, I think there's a lot to still be understood about it, to be honest with you. And I'm glad to see that they're finally actually taking it seriously.